Good morning, please join me in prayer. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for our sins and to allow us to be in Christ and to have him dwell in us. Lord, we love you for loving us first. I pray today that all we do, think, and say will be pleasing in your sight. Lead us and direct us in all that we do. We lift up those within our congregation that need to feel your presence even more today. Specifically, we pray for Dave, Catherine, and Baker Driscoll. Wrap your loving arms around them all. We also lift up to you Stephen and Ashley Mintz, their daughters Emily, Maggie, Sarah, and son-in-law Caleb Faulkner, and the death of Stephen's mother, Jane Brewer, yesterday. Please be with them. Give them comfort and peace. Let us also pray for Jacoby Griffin, a member of our facility staff here at Covenant, who's in the hospital with a collapsed lung. Our church is so fortunate to have so many faithful missionary partners. Today we pray for Jim and Mariana Pepon, who've served faithfully the people of Ukraine for many years. Place a hedge of protection around them and sustain them with all that's going on there. Finally, we lift up our pastors and staff here at Covenant. Be with them all, and especially be with Robbie as he brings your word today. All these things we pray in the matchless name of your dear son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we are studying the book of Numbers here in our worship services. As I told you last week, some good friends took me to lunch, and one of them said, why are we studying Numbers? And uh, that was last week. And then since then, um, I was with one of our officers, and I explained to him that people tend to skip Leviticus and Numbers. And, uh, and I said, you know, some people... Uh, just just won't preach numbers at all. And he looked at me and said, I wouldn't. And so uh, brimming with all that confidence, <laughs> I want to remind you um, uh, how, how great a book this is. This is what's happened. This is the story we're reading that's helping us see who we are, who God is, and what it means to be his people. Uh, God came to his people uh, who were He'd made promises to them and they were enslaved in Egypt and he came and he rolled up his sleeves as it were. He bared his mighty arm and he rescued his people out of Egypt and he brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. Uh, that happens in the book, that's described in the book of Exodus. That's really the first third of that book. And then the last two thirds of that book, God who's rescued his people by his grace and power and love, he has his people at Mount Sinai for over a year. And he's impressing upon them in all sorts of ways and all sorts of laws and all sorts of rules and all sorts of communication from Yahweh through Moses, through his people. He's saying to them, I rescued you to be with you, to bless you over and over and over again. I rescued you to be with you, to bless you. And his plan is to take them into the land that he promised their ancestors, and he's going to go with them in that land so he can be with them 
and bless them. That's his promise. That's his plan. And so in the book of Exodus, the last two thirds are about them constructing a house so he can live in the midst of his people. It's a royal throne room, but Yahweh is going to live in the midst of his people. His people live in tents and his tent will be right in the middle. And that's two thirds of the book of Exodus. When you get to Leviticus, it's a long book describing how can imperfect sinners like you and me draw near to God since he's in our midst. And so that's what the whole book is about over and over again, all the rules, all the laws about sacrifices and priests. It's all about um, approaching God by faith through the mediator, through the mediation that he's designed. It's about uh, staying ritually uh, pure and clean because God is holy. He's in your midst. And it's about staying morally clean uh, so you can dwell in the midst of a holy God. Why? Because God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to live in your midst so that I can bless you. And now we get to the beginning of the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, the first 10 chapters, it's all preparation. It's all getting ready because Yahweh is with his people to bless them, but they're not going to live in the wilderness of Sinai forever. No, he's going to guide them from the wilderness of Sinai through the wilderness, and he's going to take them to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, it's going to be fantastic. Why? Because Yahweh is going to be with his people and bless them. He's going to do that in that land of promise. And that's what's going to make that land so great. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But if the Lord wasn't there, it wouldn't matter. And so he's rescued them to be with them, to bless them. And that's just over and over again. That's the main point. Well, today uh, we're going to read from Numbers 5 and chapter Numbers 5 and 6. And this is part of that uh, story of preparation, how God's people prepare to march with them into the promised land. And we're going to see three types of laws in this section. We're going to see laws of consecration because God's in their midst and they've got to learn to be holy. Then we're going to see laws about confession because they were like you and me. Uh, they didn't always do what God said. And when they broke God's word, they had to know uh, how to confess their sins and what to do next. And then we'll see one law of confirmation that quite acutely reveals God's deepest commitment to his people. So uh, let's read this. We're reading portions from chapter five and six, and then we'll pray and move into this passage about consecration, confession, and confirmation. Numbers five, beginning here in verses one through 10. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As Yahweh said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with Yahweh, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to Yahweh for the priest. In addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him and every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. 
All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He's spoken to us. Let's call upon his name to help us hear his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us hear your voice today through this very ancient text, through these unique laws. Help us hear that you call us to be holy to confess our sins and to entrust ourselves to you. Confirm in us today your great commitment to bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start by looking at that first paragraph there from chapter 5. These are consecration laws, laws about holiness. And here's basically what was just said. Uh, Be... Ver, it was one, I'm looking for one verse. Yeah, yeah. Verse three, you're going to put them outside of the camp that they may not defile the camp. Why? Because I dwell in their midst. In the midst of them, that's where I dwell. So what are the three types of people listed here uh, that are going to be put outside the camp, put outside the camp, put outside the camp? Uh, people with various skin diseases, uh, they're unclean and they can't be in the presence of God in this uh, in this time, in this situation, uh, people, male and female, with any kind of bodily discharge, they're unclean during that time. They have to be put out. And people have contact with the dead. So these are three purity laws, three cleanliness laws. And so here's the main thing. And there's lots of these in Leviticus verses uh, chapters 11 through 15. And lots of these, there's some of these in Exodus and, lo- and these here. And also in chapter 19 numbers, there's all these purity laws, all these cleanliness laws. And they strike us as utterly weird. Let's admit it. They, they're very, they're very distant from us culturally and they strike us as strange but here's what Yahweh is saying to his people again and again I rescued you I'm living in your midst and I want you to remember that I'm holy and I'm here so he gives them these laws for them to keep before them that he's in their midst and he's holy and he's different so let me explain that just for a minute um the people who did these things they're they're not necessarily guilty of anything they've just their status their ceremonial uh, ritual status has gone from being clean they have access to draw near to God versus unclean uh, they don't for that time have access to come to the tabernacle and come in into God's presence in the midst of the people Uh, What's going on here? Um, God is essentially teaching his people that he's holy and he lives in their midst. And they're going to have to be unique and take his holiness and his presence seriously to live in his presence as his people. So he gives them laws that culturally weren't nearly as strange to them as they are to us. uh, But also the laws that he gives them, though they can recognize them as, as purity laws, they are unique and different um, from the other gods, the other religions of their time. So let me explain that. Uh, Yahweh is leading his people to march through the wilderness eventually. He's still preparing them. They're going to march through the wilderness and they're going to get to the promised land. When they get to the promised land, the people there are worshiping all kinds of different gods. And here's essentially what they're doing they're worshiping gods they've made in their own image. And they're worshiping gods that are like the other creatures that are below them. Uh, humanity, male and female, were God's image bearers. We're the upper management of God's whole creation order. But this is what happens when we turn away from God. We end up making gods for ourselves. And when we make gods for ourselves, they're either in our own image, we make gods that look and sound a lot like us. How about that? God's values are just like my values. 
So in our imagination, we'll make gods that are just like us or uh, throughout the history of the world, people have made gods like the other creatures. And when we do that, the world's upside down. Because here's what God has said from the very beginning. I made you in my image. Don't make me in your image. I'm not like you. I'm different. I'm not like the gods that people made in their own image. I'm not like the, the, the creatures, uh, the gods made in the image of creatures. No, I'm different. I'm distinct. And so these holiness laws, uh, these consecration laws were meant to remind God's people over and over again that God was different. And when things weren't perfect, you had to take account for that and you couldn't dwell in God's presence. One of the things that these purity laws reveal is the new heavens and the new earth. One day there's going to be no disease and there's going to be no death and there's going to be nothing that doesn't fit God's good and perfect ways. And so in a sense, they were hints about that future. But God in all of his holiness and his perfection was giving his people word pictures, living parables, living examples that to draw near to him and be in his presence required holiness, required a type of cleanliness that was meant to reveal that they respected God, his presence and his holiness. Now, when we read these laws, they sound really shameful to us because people are put out of the camp and that, that feels like it'd be shaming, but let's just think about it for a minute. Um, this morning in our, in our first service, there was a family here who experienced a death in their family just this weekend. Well, in the ancient world, you couldn't count on the hospital, the doctors, or hospice to, to deal with uh, your family members. So if someone died in your family, you were responsible to carry them and have them buried. There was no shame and no guilt in that. But if you had contact with your dead relative, like you went to bury your mother, which is exactly what you should do, then you had to go outside the camp and you had to recognize that made you ritually, not morally, ritually unclean for a period of time, okay? And so uh, that's what we're seeing here. So in, in, that ancient, in that ancient culture, people following these purity laws, a good third to a half of them would have been ritually impure at times. A ton of them would have been outside the camp. It, it wouldn't have carried the big shame connotations that we read into it because lots of people had discharges, lots of people had uh, skin diseases, and, and people were dying. And there were other reasons that you could become ceremonially uh, unclean. And so people were constantly uh, being put outside the camp. And when they went outside the camp, they had a lot of people to hang out with uh, because those people were put out as well. It was a very normal part of their life, uh, which does seem strange and hard to believe, but it was just their normal week in, week out, month in, month out life that they learned to live with. But it reminded them, here's the most important point. It reminded them that Yahweh was holy and he was in their midst, that God was with them and he was holy and they had to think about approaching him. Uh, this reality is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life and in his death. Just for a minute, I'm gonna borrow uh, the middle section of the Gospel of Luke uh, to show you how, this, how these laws get fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Remember uh, in, in this passage, who gets put out of the community? 
It's people that have uh, leprosy or skin diseases, people who have a discharge, and people who have contact with the dead. Well, in the middle of Luke's gospel, from Luke 4.14 through 9.50, there's this middle section. And through most of that section, Jesus is in Galilee doing ministry. He's announcing the good news of the arrival of God's, of the arrival of God's kingdom. And he's doing acts of kindness and mercy and healing that are revealing that the kingdom of God has come in power. The true king has come from his throne room and he's on earth doing good things and inviting people to draw near to him. So in, the, in numbers, if you're unclean, you can't approach the throne room. You can't come near the tabernacle. Well, in the gospel of Luke, we're told about how the true king has come from his throne and in a person, he's out in places like Galilee doing amazing things. So at the very beginning of this section, Jesus is driven by the Spirit to do ministry in Luke 4, 14 and following. At the beginning of Luke 5, he calls his first disciples, Peter, James, and John, and then immediately someone with leprosy, very thing named here in Numbers 5, walks up to Jesus and he, he falls on his face before him and begs him and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. But before he says those words, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. Is he breaking the holiness laws? No, 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 no. He is the holiness. He's God himself in our humanity, moving from the heart of the temple out into our space, making people whole and clean. And if Jesus has touched your life, he's made you clean. And one day he'll make you perfectly whole. So you keep going through this section of Luke's gospel. You get to chapter six and Jesus has got lots of disciples. He chooses 12 and names them apostles. And shortly after that, so Jesus is kind of constructing the 12. He's reconstituting Israel around himself. Who has the authority to do that? So Jesus has got the 12 apostles. And shortly after that, uh, Jesus is going on ministry. He goes out and, into the area where the garrisons are. Then he comes back into Galilee. And uh, Jairus, uh, who's a synagogue ruler, comes up to Jesus and he's distraught. He, like the leper, he throws himself down before Jesus and begs him because his daughter, who is about 12 years old, is dying. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to take care of this. And he begins to follow Jairus to go to his house to heal his 12-year-old daughter who is dying. And on the way, he goes through a town and it's super crowded. There are people pressing all around him. It's the story that, we, that Justin read for us just earlier. Remember, he's on the way to Jairus' house, but people are all around him and it's so crowded. And Jesus, this is strange, he feels power going out of him. He's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? And what does he say? Who touched me? Lord, how do we know who touched you? Look at the crowd. Everyone's touching you. It's so crowded. No, no. I perceive that power went out of me. Who touched me? And what happens? There is a woman who has a discharge, a flow of blood for 12 years, 12-year-old little girl, 12-year flow of blood, Jesus shaping the 12 disciples. And this woman who's had this flow of blood for 12 years, she recognizes that she's going to get caught because what happened? She'd come up and just touched by faith the hem of his garment and knew immediately she was healed. And she comes and what does she do? She falls down on her face before Jesus and she admits that she had touched him. And why? 
And now everybody knows this woman who was unclean has touched him. Is he unclean? No, he's not unclean. He's the very holiness of God and he's on the move. He's making people clean and making people whole. And then the real bad news happens. Jesus is just having this conversation and people come from Jairus' house. It's like, hey, don't bother me anymore. She's dead. Oh my goodness, we've got a leper. We've got someone with a discharge. Now we've got a dead person. Oh, don't even bother him. And Jesus says, don't worry, only believe. And what does Jesus do? He goes to Jairus' house and he tells him to stop mourning. And she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him. The text says it's because they knew she was dead. She was dead, but he knows what he's about to do. And so what does Jesus do? He reaches out and takes her by the hand. He touches the leper. The woman with the discharge touches him and he touches the dead girl and says, little girl, arise. And he brings her back out of death. In all of these cases, Jesus is not breaking these holiness laws. He's the fulfillment of them. He's the fulfillment of them because he's the holiness of God himself in our humanity, moving toward people, making them clean, making them whole. And then for all of his compassion, for all of his kindness, for all of his being the faithful king and shepherd who moves towards his people, how does it end for him? They take him and what do they do? They crucify the Lord Jesus Christ, where? Outside the camp. He's crucified outside the city, treated as those, those he, though he's filthy with ritual and moral purity, but he's got no filth. He's crucified outside the camp and outside the city for people who truly were unclean, people like you and me. Jesus has truly come to rescue us from everything that defiles us, even from death itself. You know, he's entered death, didn't he? And so one day there'll be no disease and no death. Um, Jesus has come to rescue us, uh, but it's not just that we should think about purity. um, And maybe on another sermon, we'll talk about that. The New Testament talks a lot about um, our purity and we should think about that. Uh, But we know that we sin. Uh, We know that um, often it's not just an external ritual thing, but in our hearts we sin. And so the next law is about when we sin. It's a confession law. Confession laws about guilt. So in verses five and following, uh, this is what we have. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people. And what's this law? When a man or woman commits any of the sins the people commit, so interesting, the definition of sin here, by breaking faith with Yahweh and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he's committed. This is a confession law. My conscience tells me I've sinned. I've broken faith with the Lord. I need to confess, but what, what kind of sin is this that broke faith with the Lord? In middle of verse seven. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Do you see what's going on here in this brief paragraph? This paragraph is teaching us that when we sin against each other, we're breaking faith with the Lord. Since we're all made in God's image, when I sin against someone else made in God's image, I'm defacing the image God himself. And so this breaking faith of the Lord here, technically in this passage, is somehow robbing somebody else, mistreating somebody else. And so I've got to go confess that and deal with it. I got to confess that I sinned against the Lord and I got to confess that I sinned against you. 
And then this pastor says, I have to make it right. I have to give full restitution, adding 20% or one-fifth uh, to what I've done. So let's think about why would we do that? Let's just imagine uh, that we live in the ancient world and I stole Daniel's ox. Thank you, Daniel. Sorry about that. And so I stole Daniel's ox for a week. And, and it, was, it was an important time, uh, harvest season. So these are obviously lost when they're going to get to the land. I steal uh, Daniel's ox and, and I keep it for a week. Well, and then my conscience tells me, wait a minute, this isn't my ox, this is Daniel's ox. I got to get it back to him. So I go and I, and I confess my sin. I bring the right sacrifice. I confess it to the Lord. Lord, I sinned against you and my brother Daniel and I give him back the ox. What's the, what's the 20%, the one-fifth about? I'm acknowledging that that week that his ox worked on my farm, his ox was not working on his farm. And so I'm just, I'm just making it right. Right? I've sinned against the Lord. I've broken faith with the Lord, but I've robbed my brother. And adding that fifth acknowledges that when I've stolen from my brother, I didn't just take his dozen eggs, but he wasn't able to feed his children for a few days. It's whatever. I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking full responsibility for my action and its effect on my brother or my sister. Do you see that? Taking, taking full responsibility for those actions. If God is among us, it doesn't make sense to mistreat those who bear his image. Think about the ways we do this. We, we typically don't steal each other's oxes these days. Um, but if I gossip about you, if I denigrate your character and you're not in the room, and I help three or four people have a lower opinion of you after the conversation with me than the day before, then I've truly robbed you. And how would I make that right? What would I do? Well, first of all, I would say, Lord, I broke faith with you. I, I'm, I, it's not my role to help other people think, think poorly of my brother or my sister. And then I got to go tell you, you know what? I spoke about you in ways that I, I definitely help people think more lowly of you. And then I have to say restitution. How can I make that right? And then I might have to think about ways to rebuild that person's reputation. That's what's being described here. Uh, taking responsibility for my actions, uh, taking it seriously. Jesus said something about this that really uh, is clear for us. Remember what Jesus said about when you're bringing your offering, it's in Matthew 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what does he say? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your guilt. In other words, if your relationships aren't healed and restored as, as far as you have responsibility for it, horizontally, don't come with your vertical worship. But God, God, God cares about all of it. If you will, take your worship guide just for a minute and just flip back just a little bit to page 10. This is actually part of our liturgical practice here week in and week out. One of the ministers gets up and reminds us that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ shed blood. And then we say, peace be with you and also with you. And then we greet one another. And then look at that paragraph there on page 10. The passing of the peace plays a significant role in our liturgy. It precedes our coming to the Lord's table, which we'll do just in a few minutes. Because the sacrament manifests and celebrates our unity in Christ as one body. First Corinthians 11, and we could name other passages as well, implores us not to let factions and divisions remain in our midst. 
Thus the peace calls us to move toward our brothers and sisters as Christ moves toward us in reconciling, reconciling grace and mutual love. That's why we say that passing of the peace. And the, and the most important thing to say is it ought to be real. The passing of the peace isn't the nice, friendly, smiley, glad handing moment in the service, though it can be wonderfully warm. It's the moment where we say we're not pretending. We have confession of sin because we're not pretending that we're people that we're not. And we pass the peace because we're not pretending. We're not acting like our relationships are reconciled when they're not. But let me show you one more very important phrase in this passage back there on page 12, uh, numbers five. Look at verse six. When the person commits the sin, breaking faith with Yahweh into verse six, and that person realizes his or her guilt. You see that? Now, there might be times where the spirit prods you to help somebody see that they're in the wrong, but this passage assumes that's God's work. This passage assumes that the spirit is at work in the hearts and minds of God's people using the scriptures, using our consciences and bringing us to a sense of awareness of our sin and things that we must confess and deal with. So please don't harden your conscience. Please respond to the Lord when the Lord is speaking to your conscience through the spirit, through the word. Please respond, but don't take the Holy Spirit's role in everyone else's life. It seems that God's plan is to use the spirit and his word to bring us to conviction so that we would confess our sins. So finally, if you will, look with me, not only uh, these laws about consecration being set apart for a holy God and confession, owning it when we're not holy, but finally a simple law about confirmation. Here's what I mean. God is confirming at the end of chapter six, a law about his own commitment because he wants us to get it. He wants us to hear this, how committed he is to his people. So think about it once again, uh, Yahweh lives in the midst of the people. He's holy. He lives in the holy of holies. There's the holy place and the inner sanctum is the holy of holies. And that's where he lives. He's seated on the ark of the covenant. He's really there. He's the king, the glorious one in the midst of his people. Now he transcends that, but he's made his presence known there. And so he gives all of the laws about the priests and all the laws about the sacrifices so that the sinners like you and me could come and approach him and draw near to him. The whole book of Leviticus and so much of what God's saying is, I want you to acknowledge your sin, but I want you to draw near. I want you to draw near. I want you to draw near. And when God's people draw near, drew near at the various sacrifices, when the incense went up, went up reflecting their prayers and uh, along with the whole burnt offering ascending into God's presence when they came with the lamb or the bull or the ram or the goat when they came to God's presence and offered their sacrifices what is it that God wants them to hear God wants them to hear his priest saying to them I'm in your midst to bless you I've taken you as my people and I identify with you and that's what this uh, passage says. This is what Yahweh wants the priest to say. It's 622. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, in this particular way, you shall bless the people of Israel. Aaron, you, 
You represent the people to me, but you represent me to the people. When they draw near to you, they want to hear how I think of them. I want you to tell them. So when they draw near, you shall say to them, verse 24, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face upon you and give you peace. And listen to what the Lord says just to nail it down. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Like God's saying it very clearly and very loudly. I identify with my people. You were mine. You belong to me. I commit myself to you. And here's what I really want to do. I want to bless you. So just really quickly, let me just say what these word means. These words mean uh, God wants to bless his people. That's at the beginning of the end. And one thing he d- does is he's going to bless them, give them what they need for life and godliness. He's going to keep them. He's committed to protecting us, his people. I love this next line. Uh, God says, uh, the Lord says that he will um, make his face shine upon them and be gracious. Uh, this phrase ba- basically means that God is going to beam on them. He's going to smile over them. He's going to be uh, affectionate toward them, and his face is beaming toward them. Have you ever seen a seven-year-old boy hit a real home run for the first time at age seven? I don't mean like the grounder to the first grade, went to the grounder to the first grader's legs, and the right fielder threw it over the second. I don't mean that home run. I mean, he actually hit a home run. And have you ever been the third base coach or, or been the parent in the stands, and you see that little boy rounding third base, and his smile so big he almost trips over it? That's what Yahweh's saying here. I want Aaron to say, I'm smiling on my people. Why? Because I have favor to give them. That's who God is. That's what he's saying. That's how important his mediation is. I'm a holy God. I want them to come to me. And when they come to me through the mediation that I've provided, they're going to get my smiling face. I'm going to bless them. And then uh, the last part, lift up his face and give you shalom or give you peace. Uh, This means basically Yahweh saying, I'm going to turn my face towards you. I want my people to know that I see you. I see you. I see your needs. I'm going to supply them and I will give them shalom, peace. That doesn't just mean like the absence of conflict. We need that. We're all in relationships. We need the absence of conflict. But it's way more and way richer than that. It's wholeness of life. So every Tuesday at 315, if you're going to come to Prez, we're experiencing complete and total shalom. Raise your hand if you believe me. That's not happening here. When will we finally experience this absolute end of disease, absolute end of death, and the perfect smiling face of God in all of life, every strain pulled out of every relationship, all disappointment flushed and gone forever, life in all of its fullness, God in all of his joy. When will he experience that imperfection without any gap when the king returns, King Jesus, and we behold him face to face, and then we'll be made like him, and that's when we'll have all of what God promises here and all of its perfection. So how can you know? How can you know that, that you have a foretaste of it now and you're going to really get that in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever? Can you be sure that that the blessing of God belongs to you now in Christ Jesus and you will experience it in perfection and for eternity? How can you know? Uh, You might remember when uh, Adam and Eve first rebelled against God. You can read uh, that story in Genesis 3. 
1 through 7, they're rebellion. But in, in verse 8, it tells us after they rebelled against God, they were walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they, they heard his voice. They heard the sound of the Lord walk in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They went and hid from his face amongst the trees. The first Adam rebelled against God, and, and he knew he was guilty. And so Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, and they hid from God's face in the midst of the trees. And so when God sent his own son to be the second Adam, to live the life that Adam failed to live, to live the life that we failed to live, what happened to his son who lived the obedient life? Well, he was exposed on a tree in the place of rebels like Adam and Eve and you and me. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. On a tree. The curses that our rebellion deserved were put on him and he was exposed on a tree and there he experienced the frown of the holiness and righteousness of God so that if you believed in him, you would know that you have God's smile on you today and will experience the fullness of it forever and ever and ever. Everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. So Jesus hung in our place, removing the curse so that God's name and God's blessing would rest upon us both now and forevermore. Will you pray with me and let's join the king at his table. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you sent your son to rescue us. When we think about ourselves, we know we're unclean, not just in ceremonial ways, but in genuine ways, inside and out. When we think about ourselves and our presence, we know that we're broken, that what comes out of us is often sick, bringing death. But you've touched us. You've made us your own people. You've committed yourself to us. So help us enjoy that. Celebrate that now at our king's table. Oh, Lord, feed us and nourish us because of your great love for us, because of your commitment to bless your people and feed us and nourish us until we see you face to face. Amen.